Our meditation this morning is taken from Psalms 119. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm overwhelmed with this song this morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we worship you this morning, Jesus. We worship you this morning. We stand in your presence, oh, Lord, as your Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus, to God our Father. We are set free in his presence. Oh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, as we sing your word. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, Father, you have shown yourself faithful through all generations. Oh, we worship you this morning, Father God. May we turn our eyes, our hearts, our lives to you today. Oh, Father, you are beautiful. You are beautiful. Your presence, Lord, speaks life. Your presence speaks hope. Oh, Father, as this worship just brings us, Lord, makes us aware of your presence that's here, ready to meet our needs, Lord. We humbly take everything that we are, our crowns, our accomplishments, everything that we have, we lay at your feet. It is nothing compared to your glory, your holiness, your completeness, your beauty, your sinlessness, Lord. And you have said, I love you. I crown you with my presence. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that we can be image bearers of your presence. Oh, thank you, Lord. This morning, our psalms uh, meditation is taken from uh, verses 89 through 96. And speaking of the word, you can follow along. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Your law endures to this day for all things serve you. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Save me, for I am yours. I have sought out your precepts. The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. To all your perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. The psalmist writes about the unchanging nature of God's word. And of course, my mind goes straight to the New Testament when it says all scripture is breathed by God. His words, his purposes, his faithfulness continue through all generations. Throughout time, man has tried to destroy his word tried to burn it, outlaw it, tear it up, trample it, but his word endures, and it will, won't it? 
Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. I think back at, you know, generations of my family that have come to know Jesus. My grandparents, their story of coming to know Jesus. The story of my mom and dad coming to know Jesus. My older siblings, the one that I'm going to go and celebrate his life this coming week. His story of coming to Jesus, his redemption is amazing. And we stand here in his presence, so honored to be called his children. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So honored, Lord Jesus to walk in a relationship with you. My creator, my redeemer, my life giver, my hope. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. Oh, we thank you, Jesus. We cry holy, holy, holy. Open your Bibles, if you would. Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. Continuing in our study of Mark's gospel, and continuing as we have the last several weeks, um, on the subject of being real, Jesus encountering uh, all the different religious authorities of his day, and on this subject of being real, this again is his last public encounter uh, with all of these religious figures. Um, their, first, their last chance, rather, to speak with him, interact with him in the public eye. The next time they see him will, of course, be arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection. Um, we've been talking about being real and what a struggle that can be for us to really ask seriously those questions. Who am I? What do I believe? And then does my life actually reflect? Do the things that I do actually reflect what I, who I say I am and what I say I believe? Well, this morning, Jesus is just going to really zero in on this issue of being honest, of being real. Um, he's had his confrontation in the verses we just looked at with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Now he has a, a deputation of Pharisees and Herodians that come to him. Now, on a totally personal note, this is a passage of scripture we're going to be looking at that I have always loved. I really enjoy this passage of scripture. And of, of late, I've had to acknowledge that I probably enjoy it for some reasons that probably aren't as good as they should be. You know, I, this is a passage of scripture, if you know it, where Jesus, in, in just a few words, just like verbally body slams the Pharisees. And let's face it, that's fun to watch, right? These religious types who have been giving him a bad time, they've been chasing him around, causing all kinds of problems, just to see them just laid out with actually just four words, that's cool. I like that, right? But if that's as far as I go, I've had to be kind of honest with myself here. If that's as far as I go, yeah, Jesus, you know, 
He blew up the Pharisees. Goop. Yeah, let's move on. I'm going to miss something because there's something there for us as well. There's something there for me. And so this morning, we're going to try to take just a little bit closer look and um, find what exactly Mark is trying to tell us in this really, really great passage of Scripture. So Mark chapter 12. Um, Begin, let's begin in the 12th verse because it really follows what happened last week. Verse 12, and they were seeking to seize him. This is the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. And you defer to no one, that you're not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look to your word this morning, I do pray, Father, that we'll not only see what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees and the Herodians, Lord, and by connection, those who had sent them, but also, Father, what he has to say to us. That's our heart's cry this morning. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'd like to do this morning, as we've been in the habit of doing, is just first look at the text, take a good look at what's happening, and then consider a really crucial uh, cultural matter or a cultural perspective and see something that we might otherwise miss, and then we can finally ask, you know, how does this apply to us, although it should be, I think, pretty obvious. Uh, so the text first, we've had Jesus' encounter with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, that whole deal we just looked at last week. And it ends with them really wanting to shut him down. Now, the text doesn't say what they had in mind by that, whether they just wanted to arrest him and stuff him in a prison, uh, maybe arrest him and rough him up a little bit and he'll be quiet, or whether they just wanted to kill him. But they wanted to shut him down. But because they feared the multitude, because Jesus was much favored by the multitude, they feared the crowds, they couldn't do that. So with that as a backdrop, we move into the next setting. Verse 13, they, and we would assume that they as the ones we were just talking about, you know, the chief priests, the scribes, all the religious folks, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. So let's talk about the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Most, I think, are familiar with the Pharisees. We talk about it all the time. Uh, they're these hyper-religious types. They were all about obeying the law. But we got to give them a little more credit for that and really recognize who they are. The Pharisees, in case you didn't know, were not like religious professionals. They had nothing to do with the temple. There were a few of them in the Sanhedrin, but they were a minority. The Pharisees were, were drawn from the common people. They all had jobs. They had, you had to have a job to be a Pharisee. You had to have a trade. You had to have a family to be a Pharisee. Um, but their whole thing was strict observance of the law. One's righteousness was attained and demonstrated by strict observance of the law. And that's why the people respected them so much. The people had a very favorable attitude toward the Pharisees because, you know, they were generally honest about what they were about. We're about keeping the law. We keep the law. They got carried away with that, but they kept the law. So now this group comes to Jesus 
along with some Herodians, and they're a little bit of a, mis a mystery to us. They only are referred to three times in the New Testament, and every time they're with the Pharisees. The three times they show up, they come with the Pharisees. What we know of them is they were in some measure, as the name would suggest, allied with Herod, King Herod, the puppet king of Rome. And what we can ascertain, what scholars have ascertained, is they were mostly a political group. Their religious beliefs may have been kind of vague. All they really wanted was that Caesar would be put out of the way and Herod would take control. They wanted Herod to be their king. Now, how that group aligns with the Pharisees is a little bit hard to come up with because the Pharisees didn't think much of Herod. It may have been nothing more that, well, Herod would be better than Caesar. Right? It's also been suggested by some scholars that there was some intermarrying between those two groups. There's a few references in historical writings that suggest some of the leaders of the Pharisees may have intermarried with you know, the daughters of the Herodians, so on and so forth. But by whatever formulation, these two groups come to Jesus and they come with a question. And it is not an honest question. As Mark points out, it is very clearly a trap. They had an intent to trap Jesus in something that he said. So looking on to the next verse, they said they came to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. You're not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. I especially love the one where it says that you don't defer to anyone. That the best translation of that is you're not concerned with anybody's face. You don't care what they look like. You're not a face-evaluating person. You don't worry about people's outward appearance. And it's rather obvious what they're doing. I mean, this is just out-and-out out flattery. Um, I would use the word schmooze. You know, they're really trying to get on Jesus' good side, kind of disarm him so that he won't see this question coming. They're really, they're really setting him up. Teacher, rabbi, we acknowledge you're a great teacher. You don't defer to people. You're not easily swayed, and you teach the word of God in truth. Of course, they didn't believe any of that. They did not believe a word of that. That was just setting Jesus up for the question to follow. And they asked this question. It's a loaded question. Is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, the poll tax was the basic essential tax that was paid all the way across the Roman Empire. The way the Roman Empire governed, they allowed an awful lot of autonomy in the different areas that they governed. And local governments, as long as they cooperated, were allowed to raise their own taxes, do their own thing. But the poll tax was this universal tax paid across the empire except in Rome. Roman citizens didn't pay it. Everybody else paid it. This is quite literally the tax you paid for the privilege of being a subject of Rome. If you're going to enjoy their roads, you're going to enjoy the peace that having Roman soldiers camping in your country would bring, it was going to cost you. Rome wasn't going to pay for it. So this is a tax, and it was usually valued at one day's wage for a day laborer. An average laborer working in the field or you know, working in a shop, whatever you got paid for that one day. And of course, the, the value varied, but it was paid with a coin called the denarius, and that was, again, one day's wage. And so when they asked Jesus this question, is it lawful to pay the poll tax or not? And then they repeat the question, do we pay or do we not pay? It's what we would call in rhetoric a false choice. They're giving Jesus these two choices. You have to choose one or two. And of course, both of them, both of the options are losing propositions for Jesus. 
Because if he says, yes, you should pay the poll tax, he would have lost all of his support from the common people. They hated it. They hated paying the poll tax because it was an affirmation of Caesar. It was an affirmation of Caesar's rule. So the common people hate the poll tax. I mean, the, the, the monetary part aside, the very idea, paying this tax, acknowledging that, yes, we are subjects of Rome, horrific to the people. Jesus says, yes, he loses the common people. And if he loses the common people, then the problem that was discovered by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders in the previous verse of wanting to take Jesus out, but being afraid of the common people goes away. And they can do what they want to do with Jesus. If, on the other hand, he says, no, don't pay the poll tax, then all they have to do is go to the Romans and say, hey, we got this preacher out here, and he's telling everybody not to pay the poll tax, and the Romans will come and solve their problem and take Jesus out of the picture. So they've very clever, and this was not a new question, this was hotly debated, but to present this before Jesus in such a way, the idea was to present him with a question, there's no way out of it. Sooner or later, they're going to rid themselves of this wild rabbi. And Jesus, in four words, a little bit longer in English, four words in the original text, completely diffuses the situation. He says, why are you testing me? He was aware of their hypocrisy. This is all about being real, and they're not being real. This is all about being honest, and their question is not honest. Why are you testing me? You know who you are. That's what the word testing means here. It means to find out what something is made of. You know what I'm made of. You know what I've been teaching. For now almost three years you've been listening to me. You know who I am. You know what my... Why are you bothering to test me now? Is it just to catch me in some clever trap? He says, bring me a denarius to look at. And so they bring him a coin. On one face of the coin would have been an image of Caesar, probably Caesar Augustus at this time. It would bear the image of whatever Caesar was Caesar at that moment. And Caesar Augustus had been around for quite a while. So probably an image of Caesar Augustus. And on the back would be something else of significance in Roman culture. You know, maybe the two twins that supposedly founded Rome or some, you know, construction project, a bridge or so. So the front would be the face of Caesar and the back would be something of significance to the Romans. So Jesus held up evidently the face that had Caesar on it and he asked this question, whose image and inscription is this? Whose ikona? Whose image? Whose face is on this coin? And somebody in the crowd responds, Caesar's! Straightforward answer, truthful. And so Jesus answers simply and directly, render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give Caesar his due. It's his, it belongs to him. The statement is brilliant in its simplicity. Again, just four words in the original text. And it's also beautiful in its complexity because he does so much more than answer the question. And, and here's the thing, beyond that, beyond simply saying, okay, it's got Caesar's image, just give it back to him. Evidently, he lost it. It's got his name on it, it's got his face on it, it must be his, give it back. Beyond the beauty and the simplicity of the way he answered them, he also opened up a whole avenue of other things to be considered, and then he added something that he had no reason to add. When he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, the issue's over. He can put a period and, and go on his merry way. He's answered that question. But he adds this, 
and render unto God the things that are God's. They were amazed, awed, stunned, speechless. With a single phrase, he had completely answered their argument. He had completely diffused everything they wanted to do. And then he had added this, but render unto God the things that are God's. What's that all about? Well, here's where we have to come to a cultural reality. I'm not completely foreign to our culture, but not quite as, as, as I guess, I don't know, profound or strong as in Middle Eastern culture. One of the very first things I was told before we took our family into the Middle East, and you know this wouldn't matter if you were in Greece or an Arab country or Israel or Turkey or any Middle Eastern country, this is true. We were told whenever you're in a conversation, remember what's not said is more important than what is said. We'll try to make sense out of that. We as parents do it all the time with our kids. You know, I have told you not to do that. And if you do it, there will be consequence. Now you've done it. Do you have to say the next line? No. Everybody in the room understands what's coming, right? Now, it, ha it can be used positively, too. I told, didn't I tell you, if you work really hard and you study and you apply yourself, you'll do well? Well, you studied. It makes the conclusion all the more powerful. I think it's actually a form of like inductive learning. Right? It's a very common technique. Well, we use that some here. This is big time in the Middle Eastern culture. And so when Jesus says, render under Caesar that which is Caesar, and render unto God that which is God, it raises a question. What belongs to God? And by not raising that question, Jesus focuses the entire discussion on that question. What is it then that belongs to God? What is so important about that? That's the best way we answer the question. The answer to the question is unspoken but obvious. It becomes ours when we answer it. So what does it mean? Well, let's first go back to the question of render under Caesar the things that are Caesar. This speaks of practicalities and priorities. We must, as the people of God, as the people of Israel did then, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. We operate in a world governed by the principles and the powers of this world. I hope you pay your taxes. I hope you drive the speed limit, more or less. Right? Obey the law. Do the things you're supposed to do. You want to keep your house? Keep track of the title. That's all, all of that is rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. The coins that we carry, the bills in our wallet, they're all printed by the government. They belong to the government. If we use the plastic stuff, that goes through a bank that is regulated by the government. That's all the property of Caesar. We are, it's a practical reality to operate within that system. The fact that we are followers of, of Christ, that our citizenship is in another kingdom, that our home is somewhere else, that doesn't change the practical reality at all. As a matter of fact, what this does, when we get this, this rather simple idea that we practically have to function in this world, it, it, for me it solves that really difficult parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16, you know, the unrighteous steward, that parable of, of the guy that works for a rich guy and he totally mismanages the rich guy's stuff, and the rich guy says, okay, bucko, 
We're going we're gonna to settle things. We're going to square our books, right? And this guy is in big trouble. So what does he do? He calls all the guys that owe his master money. You can read it. It's in Luke 16. He calls all the guys that owe his master money. And the one guy says, okay, you owe my master a, you know, a thousand shekels. Let's change that. Make it 250. Boom. We'll both sign off on it, right? And he does this to all of his master's, you know, debtors. And when the and we okay, we can handle that. I, I can follow the story that far. But then the master finds out. What does the master say? The master praises him. I'm going, what? Yeah, read it in Luke 16. The master praises him and said, You are a really shrewd guy, and I am totally confused. And the master says, Because you have used the mammon of unrighteousness to win friends for yourself. In other words, when I kick you out of the door, which I'm going to do, you have all these people that will gladly take you into their home because they're so indebted to you. Use the mammon of unrighteousness to gain friends for eternity, Jesus said. So we function within the practical framework of this world, but those are never our priorities. It's a practical reality, but it's never our priority. So the accumulation of all the stuff in this world, that happens so that we can function. We need the stuff in our wallet, right? We need the stuff in the bank account, but that should never be the priority. It can never be the priority because when that becomes the priority, we're starting to give something to Caesar that doesn't belong to him. And that's our devotion and our affection. And when we, when we focus too much on the things of this world, things just given to us to function, to do the things we're called to do, to provide for our families, when we start to value those in an inappropriate way, we are giving the devotion that belongs to him to this world. So give to Caesar that which is Caesar, and he'll give him anything else. And give that which belongs to God to God. Well, how do we determine what belongs to God. Well, what was the standard he used for the things that belonged to Caesar? Had Caesar's face on it. Had Caesar's image. Well, if we want to know what to give to God, all we have to ask is what has his image? Us. This is the importance of acknowledging that we are all created in his image. Each and every one of us. This is why that truth is so absolutely essential. Because that is how we determine what we can use in this world and what belongs exclusively to his. Our image is a reflection of his being. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Well, what does it mean to be created in his image? I don't, you know, I don't know that you know, they have argued for so long. Does God have arms and legs? Does he have ears and a nose? The theologians have argued that one. Ad nauseum. That isn't even the question to ask. The question to ask is whether or not God has a physical body. What is his essential being? And that is his capacity for relationship. The text says God is love. Well, that's only possible where there's relationship. It says with regards to man, it says he created God in his image. And then what's the next line? Male and female, he created them. Now, that is not to suggest that God has gender or that God has two genders, but that God exists in a relationship. That is why we have a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, is, that explains the justification for John 3.16, for God so loved the world. His very being cried out for a world to love. 
His very being cried out and cries out for a creation to love, to live in relationship with. That is the essence of the image of God, to exist in creationship. And that is why Scripture prioritizes our love for one another. And when we fail to act in love, we violate our own nature. You show me a person that is not in a loving relationship with other people in the full spectrum of human If you show me a person not in a loving relationship with other people, I will show you a very unhappy person and a very unfulfilled person, a deeply disturbed person. That's not meant to be a clinical diagnosis, simply to say a person that's not happy. We were intended to live in relationship. And that is why we say that all human life is sacred because all human life is oriented towards relationship. It is essential to respect life in all of its forms. All living creatures are a life form to be respected. I will not hunt with a man that doesn't respect the animals he's hunting. I see a fellow mis mistreat a living creature just because we're hunting it the last time I hunt with him. One of the real joys for me when we lived in Southeast was to learn the different ways that the Macaw people respected the animals that were. All life should be respected, but human life is distinct because human life alone is created in his image. That is why we say human life is sacred. There's a unique sacredness to human life that is an essential principle. Lose that and we lose everything. We have nothing else to base any value system on, any idea. We have nothing else to base anything on if we lose the value, the godly image value of human beings. You lose that and anything becomes possible. I ran across a quote this week that really took me back. It's from, of all people, Voltaire. Not normally known for his Christian insights, but Voltaire said this, you show me someone who can be convinced of an absurdity, and I will show you someone who can commit an atrocity. If we lose our rational understanding of the value of human life, to lose that is an absurdity. Isn't it interesting? I don't know. I hope I don't step on any toes here. But isn't it interesting that people, I'm making a generalization here, people that are okay with terminating, this is a generalization, but people as a rule who are okay with terminating the life of an unborn child have a really serious problem with terminating the life of a convicted murderer? You show me the sense in that. Why one's okay and the other isn't. It's an absurdity. If you lose the sacredness of human life at any point or any level, then all that's left is absurdity. There's no foundation for anything. The fact that we are made in his image, if, or rather, if we are indeed made in his image, then our ultimate purpose in life must be to reflect that image. This is one way to answer the question, what does it mean to be redeemed? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be born again? It means to live a life that is freed to reflect his image. A 
a life that is empowered by the presence of the Spirit of God to reflect His image. That's what He calls us to be and to do. And the point is this, and I'll end with this. If I am saved, if I am washed by the blood of the Lamb, if I'm filled with and animated the Spirit of God, then my life should increasingly be a reflection of who He is. That's being real. That's simply being real. If day by day, my life increasingly reflects who he is, then I can honestly say I'm saved. I can honestly say I'm born again. And there should be no greater joy in human life than doing just that, than doing things that build relationships within the context of a loving God and a loving Savior. There's joy in that. I had a, I'll, I'll close with I had a marvelous experience Friday. Um, a, a very good friend of mine, there were three families when I came to the Lord 45 years ago in Neobay, Washington. There were three families involved in leading me to the Lord. And then they kind of like just wrapped themselves around me. And they had this Bible study that was just for me. And for the year I remained there, they just continued to pour their life into me. Well, one, one of the families was Steve and Karen Joner. And um, I had a chance to meet with Steve this, this last Friday. And he is a, he's a biologist for the Macaw tribe. That's his practical rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar. He works for the Macaw tribe as a biologist. Yeah, he also works on the, uh, on the Halibut Commission. And he's been pointed to all kinds of fancy things he does because he's a biologist and fisheries. Great guy, great guy. Um, but we had a chance to get to have him talk like 40 years. And so I had a chance to go in. He was up here for the Halibut Commission meetings, and we sat down, and he shared all the really cool stuff that had been going on in his life. And then I started to share all the stuff that had gone on in our lives and stuff God had done through us. And then I started to share about stuff that God had done through people that we had ministered to. And as his story went on, I'm really getting choked up, right? As the story went on, I said, I realized something, Steve. I'm telling you your story. Because everything that God has done through you, God did through Steve. Because he and his wife poured their lives in relationship into me. That's what it is. That's what it is to be made in his image. And that is what we should pursue. Father, I thank you, Lord. Father, I want to thank you, um, and for that incredible opportunity I had just to sit with Steve and hear about all the amazing stuff that's been going on uh, in his life. And, Father, hear how, you know, you've been working, Lord, through his family. And, and then, Father, to be able to share with him and see the joy and the happiness in his eyes when I was able to share with him what you had done through me and how much he and his wife had a part in that. That was amazing. And so, Father, I pray that as we approach our lives, Father, we would be very diligent, Father, very diligent to recognize that we indeed are bearers of the image of the God who spoke the world into order. Lord, that's a really tall one to believe. But as we're careful to follow you in simple obedience, Lord, and we begin to see the effect of walking in relationship with you and the effect that has on the people of around us, Father, we have a promise of incredible joy. And I pray, Father, each of us would be very active to pursue that joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together this morning.